Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have myself, Jacob Anjwafa, and um, Zane Alcorn as your morning presenters um, for the program today. Good morning. Good morning, Zane. And, um, yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, we have a pretty packed program today. Um, we're going to be having two interviews. Um, we're going to be interviewing Paz Forgani, who is someone we've actually been, um, who's been a regular guest on Green Left. In fact, all the guests we have um, on today have been regular guests. Um, we have Paz Fulgani, who we're going to have on to speak about um, the state of the welfare system, um, the significance of the COVID uh, supplement increase, um, especially for um, hearing from someone who's been campaigning so long about raising the welfare rate. And then we're going to be um, talking with Green Left and Socialist Alliance's Peter Boyle about this whole sort of cyber scare or scare campaign about the impending threat of China and discussing all the kind of elements that are kind of associated with that. But I guess um, before we start by discuss, um, before we start discussing any kind of headline news or anything, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and that this always was always will be Aboriginal land. Hear, hear. All right. So, Zane, quite a lot has happened, I guess, in this past week. I think there's a particular story you're interested in sort of bringing up first. I have my own kind of story I'd like to discuss before our first guest comes on. But, you know, concerning the whole issue that happened in the past week in Hawthorne, where two CFMEU officials um, were allegedly assaulted Um on the work on a work site. Yeah, so uh, I don't have any particular uh, extra information other than what's been reported in the mainstream media, but what has been reported is that two officials uh, attended that site. I believe it was on Tuesday morning, and. Uh, they had all the correct paperwork. This is the standard business of the CFMEU. Construction is a very dangerous industry. There's a lot of risks involved. And so one of the ongoing daily tasks of the CFMEU, which full disclosure I'm a member of, is to go around and check that the various uh, occupational health and safety measures on construction sites are up to scratch. Uh, it's a complex thing. There's all sorts of areas of safety that need to be taken care of from 
trench soaring to make sure that trenches don't collapse, making sure that people are wearing the correct safety gear, making sure that heavy objects are not being lifted over workers' heads, which could potentially fall and hurt people, making sure that barriers are up to scratch so that people don't fall. There's a lot of different areas of safety, and it is the union's 100% legitimate job to go to work sites and check that these things are up to scratch. And if they're not, it is within the union's power to stop work on that site until those issues are rectified. And again, that is a legitimate thing. It's it's not worth your life to uh, go and, and earn a paycheck on an unsafe job site. It's workers are 100% entitled to be able to go to work on a safe job site. Now, these two officials turned up at this job site in uh, Hawthorne on, uh, yeah, like I said, pretty sure it was Tuesday morning, and reports are that they were then attacked from behind with weapons by a group of seven people, and I think... Definitely one of the two officials was knocked out and had to be taken to hospital. I'm not sure if the other official was uh, hospitalised or not, uh, but this is just real sort of old-school gangster activity by the uh, look of it to try and stop the CFMEU doing its work. And it is absolutely disgraceful and reprehensible that unionists are being intimidated on job sites like this. There was a big protest yesterday and uh, about uh, reportedly 250 CFMEU members showed up and, and picketed that job site. And Dan Andrews, for his part, said that uh, that the protesters were being irresponsible and shouldn't um, be there because they weren't social distancing properly, as if that was the main concern rather than unionists being openly and brazenly assaulted from behind in a totally cowardly manner uh, while while carrying out their work. So uh, watch this space. I don't know... I don't know the specifics of, of who is alleged to be behind this attack, but uh, if if there is a clear link established, um, I, I, I think um, that um, who, whoever is behind this <laughs> will not have done themselves any favours by uh, committing this disgraceful assault. And uh, I was reminded when I heard about this attack of way back in the day, um, the the CFMEU or the predecessor of the CFMEU was the Builders Labourers Federation, the BLF, and it used to be a yellow union like the the AWU or the SDA. It used to be a right wing union controlled by a clique of people who were totally in bed with the bosses, and there was a sustained attempts to democratise the union and put a pro-worker team in control of the union, wrest control of it away from this right-wing leadership. And during that process, you'd have similar sort of attacks to what we've just seen 
these two organisers subjected to where people would go to a union uh, meeting and they would say, you, the current leadership, are dodgy and you need to go away and uh, we're going to we're going to stand for election and uh, get rid of you and take this union over and fix it up. And then they'd walk out of the meeting and there's a bunch of hired goons there who'd beat them up. And this is obviously a, um, a slightly different thing because it's not happening outside a meeting to people that are trying to democratise the union. This is happening to actual union officials on a job site. But the dynamic is the same. It's uh, It would appear to be that people with uh, wealth and power who don't want the inconvenience of union officials coming on site and being so audacious as to make sure that that site is safe are trying to use standover tactics and intimidate these people. And my bet is that despite all the bluff and bluster from the Australian Building and Construction Commission uh, that they want to stop thuggery in the construction industry. Like there's been all these allegations over the years about union thuggery, this and that. Uh, when there's been a trade union royal commission, there was no, there was no substantiated evidence of union thuggery. None of this sort of rumours and innuendo was able to be proved. And then here we've got the the bosses, by the look of it, attacking CFMEU officials. Is the Australian Building Construction Commission going to come down on whoever was behind this attack like a ton of bricks? My strong suspicion is not, because it's a it's a body that's set up just to attack and undermine the union, and they will turn a blind eye, is my strong suspicion. They will turn a blind eye to exactly the type of thuggery that they claim to be there to stamp out when it's coming from the from the bosses. So, yes, very dodgy. And uh, suffice to say, I don't think the CFMEU is going to take this lying down. Um, our comrades will not be intimidated by this sort of behaviour and will continue to do their job and make sure workers are safe on site. Yeah, um, well, well said, um, Zane. And I, I guess one thing I was impressed with is I was impressed with, um, the demonstration of solidarity, um, from the fellow workers, um, uh, at the CFMEU. Yeah, that's probably all we can probably say about the story. I'm, I'm not inclined to sort of speculate too much, especially pending any kind of legal case that might arise out of this. But yeah, let's hope any, the people who, are responsible for the bashing, are held accountable, and yeah, suffer the full consequences of the law for for that um, for their actions. Mm. All right, now you're listening to Green Left Radio. I'm just going to play a quick announcement, and we'll move on to discussing another news story. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription. You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. 
Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Now, I guess I think it, it would be reminiscent to not mention this. But as of um, while this, um, as of today, uh, when this show was recorded, and then of course when when this goes to air Friday morning, many are probably aware that Victoria is currently going through a surge in infections of COVID nineteen. In fact, at this stage, um, we're having up to we're having up to seventy to eighty cases a day. And in response to this, a number of suburbs um, have been locked down, mainly 10 postcodes, which reside in the kind of western to northern western parts of the suburbs. So essentially, if you live in the likes of Brooklyn, Tottenham, West Footscray, Ascot Vale, Glenroy, Hadfield, Broadmeadows, Brunswick Southwest, Faulkner and Craggyburn and so on. Can't, um, don't have time to mention all the suburbs. You're essentially subject to stage three restrictions and you are not allowed to kind of leave the house unless it is for a central reason, which generally includes the level kind of, um, which generally includes if you, um, if you have to work, go shopping, uh, for central foods, etc. The, ba- the big no-no is you're not allowed to have friends over or visit family who live in any of those postcodes. And I kind of wanted to make, I guess, a few comments, a bit, I guess, on the politics, I guess, of what's happening. Because it has been quite clear, based on the evidence, that this outbreak is linked to the mishandling of the workers who were assigned to the quarantine hotels, where it has been reported that, you know, Social distancing wasn't necessarily practiced. They weren't necessarily provided with PPOE and so on. And then I guess I think uh, another kind of issue, I think, is the fact that this outbreak, I think, is concentrated in, in a number of the kind of working class suburbs, I think, says something. And that is mainly um, the nature of um, how the capitalist system has been responding to COVID-19 crisis. Because essentially what I find interesting is these kind of lockdown restrictions uh, put a lot of scrutiny towards the individual behaviour of individuals, which I think for intents and purposes in the light of COVID-19 pandemic, it's completely necessary. People on an individual basis will have, um, have had to make sacrifices in the midst of this pandemic. Um, but at the same time, that kind of scrutiny is not necessarily reserved towards the workplace. Uh, in fact, I just received an email from my work um, outlining the situation. And basically it said, if you live in any of the postcodes, you should still work. Um, or if you're working in a service, uh, a, a, a service that is in the postcode, which actually I think just is a bit revealing because basically the capitalist system is when it comes to these implementing these lockdowns, the lockdowns are not necessarily implemented equally in a sense that they're not that interested in restricting the bulk of economic activity, despite the fact that actually the root of the problem hasn't been as um, 
you know, it hasn't necessarily been, pe- uh, been the fact that people have gone to Valiant Gardens, but it actually comes from the mishandling of the, of the virus at the workplace level. Um, because, you know, one of the issues I also think is, um, the Scott Morrison government, um, while they're very quick to blame individuals, the Scott Morrison government was actually signaling that we're, um, we were past this pandemic, uh, we have to get back to business. Uh, the economy has to keep going. Um, we have to reopen things. Um, you have to start going shopping. And in fact, that's what I always find funny about these um, lockdown restrictions is you're still allowed to shop. And a lot of shopping centres are gradually getting, being reopened. And I guess another question we'll see, as someone who works in childcare at, at, um, at, at, um, for school-aged children at, um, at public schools, I find it a bit disconcerting that this lockdown is not necessarily applying to schools. In fact, the Daniel Andrews government has been quite clear that the schools that reside in these postcodes won't be closed down, despite the fact that some that a number of schools have had to close down in response to a case of COVID-19 being discovered. So I think, you know, it's quite clear that despite the arguments from the government um, initially arguing against school closures, that schools are still a source of infection. And I think the last kind of point um, I want to make is I think the fact that Victoria is having this surge in infections. I mean, the right is trying to sort of make this argument that it was that it uh, that it's linked to the Black Lives Matter protests, but it's actually quite clear. The evidence suggests that there's no link between the Black Lives Matter protests and this current outbreak in in Victoria. And of course, if it were the case um, that the um, protests were leading to a surge in infections, it would be obvious that it should be seen in the other states because the other states also had big, massive um, rallies. Saying you might have some comments to make. <laughs> well, just that as we see the start of a potential second wave, it just underscores the fact that this is far from over and it's really important that the support measures that have been put in place by Morrison, by the Morrison government, are extended beyond their finish date of September. If you're going to have people dropping off JobKeeper, $1,500 a fortnight, down to JobSeeker, and if Job Seeker, and we'll be talking to Paz shortly about this, if that's going to be dropped down to the old rate of uh, $550 a fortnight, people are going to be having their already reduced income slashed by nearly two thirds. And there's no, like people are going to feel forced to try and go to work in the middle of a recession where there's not much work. And, and that means those people that do have jobs will feel even more kind of forced out of necessity to keep turning up to their jobs so they don't lose it because they're one of the people that's lucky enough to still have a job. So it's really important that these support measures are continued so that people are able to stay home from work. And, yeah, as you say, it's it's not good that employers are kind of compelling workers to continue turning up to work if they're in one of these lockdown zones there should be a very clear directive from all employers that if you're showing any symptoms whatsoever or if you've been tested and you're waiting to get results back don't come into work I mean that's what people should be doing anyway but yeah it's uh 
there's a real disconnect. And I was seeing from, uh, I got an update from a comrade in Sydney. I forget exactly who it was. They were saying meetings of up to 500 people indoors are now permitted in New South Wales, but meetings of more than 20 people outdoors where there's less danger of transmission because you've got fresh airflow, meetings of more than 20 people outdoors are still banned, uh, which is quite clearly aimed at continuing to ban protests. So if you're conducting business activities, you want 500 people indoors, that's all good. But if you're protesting refugees being uh, illegally detained in unsafe conditions after so many years of being locked up and there's more than 20 of you, oh, that's forbidden. It's disgusting. Yeah, um, I think it's quite, I think it's quite clear. Yeah, there's a, there's, um, all this scrutiny about protests, um, and whether it's right to protest. In fact, I read an interesting article in relation to the United States situation that protests haven't necessarily, um, while there's mass protests happening in the United States right now, they haven't necessarily been, um, linked, traced to any source in terms of a COVID-19 outbreak. And in fact, the evidence is showing that the states in the United States, well, yeah, that bit confusing phrase of words, um, <laughs> the, the states, um, within the USA that have opened up early have had a larger surge in infections than, um, states that have actually decided to go on lockdown for harder. And I think, you know, that's, I think, reflective of the fact that actually a lot of the danger with this, um, with the COVID-19 pandemic happens to relate to the, to the nature of the capitalist system and pushing people into work. And I guess to put things, I guess, a bit in perspective in a, with a bit of a summary, I'm just looking at, I guess, the Guardian kind of report at the moment. And at this point, um, COVID-19 cases are passing over 10.5 million across the globe uh, with over 500,000 deaths across 188 countries and regions. Um, the Brazil, de- um, Brazil is probably one of the worst um, with the death toll passing 60,000. And yeah, and I guess the, the next um, thing to note is the USA is still <laughs> in some sense, essentially a bit of a dystopia. And with how it's handling the COVID-19 pandemic, in fact, what's quite striking is when it comes to the US, the US never had a proper lockdown. Uh, it was just a sort of half-assed sort of lockdown. Um, so when you look at, you know, how Australia is coping, um, the situation in Victoria seems, um, which is actually quite bad, actually seems like a utopia <laughs> compared to what's actually happening in other parts of the world, such as Brazil, the UK and the United States. Mm. Yes, we're uh, we're definitely lucky compared to them. I think part of that is, I guess, there was more seeding of COVID transmission in the US because there's a lot of uh, international flights coming in and that's the main sort of vector by which COVID was spread. But yeah, there's a... The response there has just been abominable. Um, with Trump consistently kind of downplaying or denying the seriousness of it from the get go and not implementing rigorous lockdown procedures. So yeah, it's just a slow moving train wreck and it's quite horrific to see 
what's happening in the U.S. And that there that there are still people cheerleading, like not wearing masks and and not paying attention to, you know, like like your freedom to go to the shops is more important than avoiding catching a deadly disease. It's just bizarre to to watch. Yeah, have I actually wouldn't um, wouldn't mind commenting just slightly on the mask debate um, because there does appear to be a bit of an open debate in the United States with the right going really hard against um, the use of masks because some states within the United States have actually decreed that you have to wear masks. In the Australian situation, I am a bit critical of um, how the government um, has refused to sort of even, you know, make a recommendation that people should um, be wearing masks. Um, in fact, one of the one, I mean, in terms of the evidence, while it is true that, you know, wearing a mask is not like the bee's knees, it's not going to prevent you from getting COVID, but it will reduce the spread um, to a significant degree or reduce the chances that you could spread it to another person. And so I think for that reason, people should absolutely if they're going outside or going to public areas um, where they're strangers or other people, they should absolutely be wearing masks. But I did remember a quote from, I think it was one of the health officers or one of the government kind of officials uh, in response to this question of wearing masks. And it was basically an argument that saying, um, that basically said, um, oh, I'm not sure if we should recommend masks because it might make people complicit. And I sort of would have to disagree with that logic because if we were making a recommendation... Uh, make make people complacent, you mean? Yeah, make people complacent. Mm. If we were making a recommendation that people should wear masks uh, to prevent the spread of COVID-19, I think that would create the opposite of complicity because it would add an extra thing to people's routine and in their daily lives. It would be automatically a kind of acknowledgement uh, to said person who's um, that we are living in a pandemic <laughs> and mm. we actually have to be careful um, because yeah, it's um, even for myself and maybe you might've had the same experience, you know, it's almost been a bit, as things have sort of started to reopen, it's almost been quite easy to go back into kind of old habits. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's it's actually quite difficult, actually. The nature of COVID-19 is actually goes a bit against, you know, the nature of um, what we are as, as humans <laughs> in terms of, you know, how we crave social interaction and, and so on. Mm. Yeah, it's like this physical reminder that you're constantly wearing on your face to continue to be cautious in all your interactions. So absolutely. It's uh, I don't think it's a recipe for complacency. It's uh, ongoing uh, kind of kinesthetic reminder that you've got to be careful. Okay. Um, well, I might just play a quick announcement. Um, our guest is probably re- coming in between this time or later. But I'm just going to play a quick announcement. Hi, my name's Travis from Larrakia Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is 1300 655 06. Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. 1300 655 06. 1300 
6555506, the Reading Writing Hotline. A 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio and we have our special guest um, on the program, Paz Forgani. And he's been, just to introduce him briefly, he's been a long-term campaigner uh, for the unemployed and against poverty. I'm not completely sure what you're involved in at the moment, but I'm pretty sure you're involved um, with the Australian Council of Social Services uh, and have been campaigning quite heavily uh, to uh, about making the New Start increase permanent. Um, as one of his kind of fundamental issues. In fact, we've had him regularly on our program um, to talk to guests about some issues. So, yeah, good morning, Paz. Good morning, Jacob. Good to be here. Yeah, well, I guess starting, I guess, with the first question, given that you've been such a long-term campaigner for increasing the rate of New Start, which is now also known as Job Seeker Now, but I think just sometimes you can't avoid calling it New Start because it's been called that for so long, I would like to hear a perspective from you, I guess, you know, in light of this COVID-19 um, pandemic um, leading to a temporary increase, what is, what can you tell us really about the impact that this temporary increase has meant for the people on, uh, who are currently receiving the payments and why you believe the change should be made permanent? Well, um, it would be no exaggeration to say that the impact has been um, life-changing uh, um, like in my role, I, I spend much of every single day uh, speaking to people um, across the country uh, who were um, like you on Job Seeker, uh, formerly New Start, and also people in Youth Allowance. That's not, um, I forget about uh, students and young people. And the stories I keep hearing over and over again is that for the first time in a very, very long time, people can afford to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. It's uh, no longer such a tremendous um, struggle to cover their rent and bills. People talk about not needing to um, um, skip their medications anymore. Uh, I've had people say they can buy major and essential like appliances, like fridges or, or freezers. So parents told me that they can buy um, school equipment for their um, children. I mean, um, laptops, some new uniforms, you know, uh, textbooks, other other course materials. Um, so the impact has been absolutely um, tremendous on people's health and well-being. Um, we, the Australian Council of Social Service, uh, released a survey that we did of uh, 950 people on job seeker and youth allowance last week, and the results um, clearly indicated that. I mean, when you double. Uh, people's incomes, um, you know, like it has a, like it has a profound, um, it has a profound impact. Basically, uh, unlike everything I just told you, like overwhelming numbers of people saying that they're eating better, they're skipping less meals. Uh, it's easy for them uh, to pay for medicines. Uh, many people talking about being able to move into safer and more secure, like accommodation. You know, people who were previously, um, couch surfing or uh, not living in in particularly pleasant uh, premises can relocate into um, somewhere a bit more um, comfortable and appropriate and just to be clear even with the um, doubling of the of the payment people are only just above the poverty line so I 
I think that puts into perspective, unlike how low the old rate was, that even when you double it, um, people people are just above a more. Let's be clear, like five hundred and sixty bucks a week, which is which is the current rate of job seeker plus the coronavirus supplement. It's not actually that much money. It's it's a it's a tremendous amount of money compared to the old rate. But um, no one who's currently unemployed is 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 living the good life. You know, people people are just above water. In fact, we we know there are still significant numbers of people who, even with that higher rate, are still struggling with um, some of their expenses. You know, people telling us that even on the higher rate, sometimes they still can't afford to eat. Um, um, three meals a day, and sometimes they still struggle with, um, you know, medical expenses like, you know, seeing a dentist or, you know, seeing a psychologist or, or physio um, therapist. But the impact has been absolutely life changing. I can't say that enough. And yeah, that goes into, I guess, the next question, which is that. You know, Scott Morrison has mentioned at a press conference um, that he believes the high rate of job seeker, um, he, he mentioned this as like he heard from businesses apparently um, that, um, you know, the, because of the increased rate of, of job seeker, some people are not getting, uh, are not taking shifts and, um, you know, Basically, he's making this suggestion um, that people always, um, that right-wing governments always make about um, social welfare services, um, that the high rate of job seeker, as it is, I mean, it's as you kind of say, it's not even really that high, um, it has been an impediment towards those finding work. And what do you think this says, you know, this statement says about how the government views the unemployed? Well... I mean, it's the same old script that 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 they've been using um, for decades, really, isn't it? And I think it's getting a bit tiring. And I I think more and more people are seeing um, seeing them through that script. I mean, it's staggering that they'll come out with these comments at a time where I mean, we're in the midst of you know, the biggest economic crisis we've experienced in our lifetimes. Uh, you know. I'm, just about a once in a century event. There's um, one job for every um, 13 people who are unemployed, and then you add on top of that the underemployed people who are working um, casually or, or part time, who are desperately looking for more hours of paid work. Um, the huge numbers of people who have, you know, quite understandably become discouraged and like you've stopped looking for work, you know, given the given the conditions, we've got you know whole sectors of the economy that will take years to recover if they'll ever recover. You know, I'm thinking the arts, higher education, um, like entertainment, hospitality. Um, this month we had the biggest drop in job vacancies on record in the 40 odd year um, history of us collecting job vacancy um, data. So it's staggering that. On the one hand, it's staggering that Morrison would would come out with these with these claims, unlike at a time like this. Um, but also, it's it's the same old line. It's always um, some um, some unidentified pub owner or some a mysterious um, um, cafe owner, and I'm not sure why 
why we should believe them over what the data is telling us. Um, we know that, uh, unlike, as I said, you know, even, even at the doubled rate, it's only just above the poverty line. Anglicare told us that even at the doubled rate, only one and a half percent of rental properties are affordable for someone who's unemployed. So the idea of people um, turning down um, shifts, you know, is a little bit ludicrous. But I'll say this actually that that I think um, we've got to be frank that there are lots of um, jobs out there which are, you know, really poorly paid and unpleasant and and unsafe and uh, that offer people no security or or stability and maybe sometimes instead of having these conversations about um you know you know are there people out there who are um you know bulking at doing jobs that are you know really really crap you know why there's so many jobs out there that are you know really miserable and poorly paid and have um, terrible conditions um i mean we always talk about unemployed people needing incentives and to work and those incentives involve <clears throat> trying to force them to live on a on a starvation level of income but we never talk about like incentives <clears throat> sorry for businesses to actually like improve the 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 conditions and the wages of the jobs <clears throat> that they offer people you know it, it you know like it's always incentives for the unemployed it's never like incentives for the people who are like offering the jobs. So that's, that's, uh, that's my comment on that. Yeah. And I guess one of the more interesting things um, to me is that many business councils, social welfare organizations, and even sections of the Liberal Party have um, supported the cause around increase, um, increasing the rate of new, uh, of new starts, like job seeker, i.e. the old rate. Um, in fact, I mean, I don't think any Liberal Party members have actually called um, for making the current increase permanent. And as far as I know, the ALP in principle support increasing the rate, but they don't support um, making this sort of COVID supplement temporary. But of course, I think um, on this whole debate, um, many sort of experts are saying, um, you know, the rate that it current um, that it has been increased to should actually be made permanent, and the majority of people, uh, especially Australians, do appear to be um, support um, support uh, making the current um, rate increase permanent. Um, so I guess I mean taking this in account, um, why do you think that the Morrison government is so stubborn about refusing? to make any kind of commitment towards increasing the rate or even making the current rate increase permanent? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it is kind of uh, baffling that that you have this, um, I mean, a pretty, pretty unique, like, you know, kind of, you know, cross-class, like, alliance on this, um, like, on this issue. Um, I mean... Um, the business community recognizes that, you know, if we end JobKeeper at the end of September, and particularly if JobSeeker gets cut by half and goes back to the miserable old rate of um forty dollars a day, uh, it, it's going to be economically catastrophic, right? I'm, I'm, you take that much money out of the economy, out of the hands of consumers, and that's, um, yeah, that's. 
that's Armageddon, right? They they know that the the economists um, know that as well. I mean, that's you know that's the exact opposite of what you do during uh, uh, during like economically difficult times. I mean, don't take money out of the economy. I mean, you're meant to um, pump it in like as much as possible. Um, yeah, it, I'm like it is baffling. I think it shows the strength of the of the the ideology that that um, the government, but also the, um, to some extent, actually both major parties um, subscribe to, which is basically the whole um, you know um, um, we have yeah it's 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 basically the um, the um, the ideology behind your last question about um, I mean like unemployment payments have to be kept low um, to ensure that there's you know a large pool of people who will take any job that comes along no matter how desperate um no matter how um poorly paid that job is no matter how um poor um those those conditions are um and basically um um the policy of repeated governments uh um and multiple governments when it comes to treating the unemployed is that um desperation is a good thing and we need the unemployed um um to feel desperate and i think that yeah that ideology has such a strong hold that it seems to outweigh like other considerations like the need um to ensure that the economy doesn't further plummet or uh or the fact that actually by raising the rate the government would actually do something reasonably um um popular like as you said there's there's majority support for raising the rate. There has been for um, like a couple of years now. Um, but, you know, even a substantial minority of coalition voters actually recognise that the current rate is is too low. And the other thing is, it's it's long been recognised that um, and the payments actually so low that it's actually stopping people um, from from looking for paid work because they simply don't have the resources to, um, you know be effective job seekers, they can't maintain a car, you know, they struggle with, you know, internet costs and phone costs and uh, other costs of, uh, um, you know, training and upskilling and, you know, having, like, interview clothes and haircuts. Um, so, I mean, we often think about, like, the Reserve Army, the unemployed, and um, them acting as a, as a force to, you know, keep downward pressure on wages. But if... I'm like if unemployed people like are so poor that they can't actually go out and compete for jobs, then obviously that doesn't work. I mean, I mean, I'm from the, I'm from the point of view of some sections of the business community, like you actually need like a high enough unemployment payment. The people who are like unemployed are actually able to go out and, and look for jobs. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, but that's for the Morrison government. I think it's, it's like how entrenched, um, and that ideology is, and I think it's also the view that why would they give um, lots of money to um, like a whole bunch of people who, like in their eyes, are mostly never going to vote for them anyway. Um, like I think, I think as a political consideration, like um, why give billions of dollars um, to people who um, they think would largely vote for um, um, Labour, uh, like over them. Maybe going from a kind of different angle, and that is, I think you've talked quite a bit about 
I guess, the human kind of impact of this. But I'm kind of interested in a bit, I'm hearing a bit of some of your thoughts on the, on the kind of issue of the economy. I mean, as a, as a socialist and a, and a, and a Marxist, I'm not necessarily that interested in the health of the economy, but I do think there is this kind of contradiction in light of the kind of COVID-19 pandemic. And that is this kind of issue of consumption and the fact that, you know, um, the economy does rely on a high level of consumption that I don't think is likely to go back uh, to the levels that is, um, to the levels that most capitalists want it to be. And I sort of, that sort of extends to what are, I guess your thoughts on a, on sort of this impact that is likely to happen? Because even economists are warning about this of removing the supplement by, um, by September 24, including, you know, including the likes of wage subsidies such as JobKeeper, uh, that the government doesn't seem to appear to be keen about extending. And just to mention just one last thing, I just noticed a headline news story that, um, it appears on the subject of JobKeeper, um, that some sole traders weren't actually eligible for the JobKeeper, um, according to the rules, and that, but they still received it anyway. And then they, the ATO might actually be trying to get back pay off them. Um, so yeah, just kind of keen to kind of hear some of your comments on that kind of question. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, I mean, when we talk about the economy, right, it's like, it's kind of an abstract concept, isn't it? But I mean, we've, you know, we've had, um, like up until this year, um, um, you know, like almost 30 odd years of, of continuous economic growth. But at the same time, we had, um, rising inequality, uh, rising poverty. Um, for many people, their wages have been, um, frozen up for like a long time. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think we can have like an economy that's, Kind of going well without most of the country actually benefiting um, from that. I mean, what worries me is people um, um, being unemployed, um, living in poverty um, for years and years because I, I'm like, I think we're in for, um, you know, years and years of really, really difficult times. As I said, I mean, there might be some industries that never um, fully recover. I mean, like, like what's the way out of this crisis for for tourism or for higher education but yeah as it, as you said basically um there's a there's a cliff i'm coming on on september 24 which is currently the day that the that the that the higher double rate of job seeker ends and the day that that um that job keeper ends and yeah many many economists and and uh, some business groups have warned that that if the government doesn't doesn't intervene, um, um, and we'll see like another a wave of of job losses. I mean, like I should say that um, JobKeeper is obviously masking how bad things are right now. Uh, we know there are there are 1.5 million people who are currently on jobs um, JobKeeper. Who are working um, zero hours a week, uh, and presumably those people um, come September when JobKeeper ends are not are not going to have a job um, um, to go back to. So if you like include the people on JobKeeper who are getting 
no hours, if you like include those people in the unemployment figures, then we have like an unemployment rate of around 16%, which, you know, we haven't had, uh, in, yeah, a very, very long time, not like in any of our lifetimes. And you're probably not even, I'm like in our parents' lifetimes. I'm, I mean, it's hard to, uh, but we, uh, because this is, uh, I'm, you know, so outside like anything we've experienced, it's hard to like fully grasp, I mean, how dire the situation is. And, and it's not the economy I worry about. It's, it's it's the people who um, are going to be unemployed for years and the people are, I'm like, who'll never be able to work again because we know that happens after after like every single like economic crashes, huge numbers of people who never find paid work again. Um, they're normally older people and and quite often they're women. Uh, we know that our women have been disproportionately like affected by the uh and the job losses um, at this time round as well. Yeah. Well, the last um, sort of the last question, because unfortunately our other guest is going to be coming in soon. I kind of want to talk about what are the, what is the sort of campaign uh, you're kind of initiating at the moment, and if you can also tell us uh, about some of the other campaigns that have been initiated by other organisations uh, about all these issues, and what can you tell us about them, and um, what are the um, some of the demands? Yeah, well, I mean, as you mentioned at the start, I work for uh, the Australian Council of Social Service, which uh, which is ACOS on the Raise the Rate campaign, um, which is the campaign to um, permanently raise uh, the rate of job seeker and um, youth allowance. And the uh, success of that um, um, campaign has been dependent on um, the efforts of, of um, like unemployed people and students across the country um, who've organized together, who've spoken out together, who've, I, 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 you know, in like in ways that are, you know, often quite risky, I'm, you know, shared, share their stories with the rest of the country and, and, and like help to build, you know, pretty strong and overwhelming support for, um, for, um, for raising the rate. I've been doing that, um, for the last, um, year and a half. Um, one of the really like exciting things is the growing, Grassroots in this space. Um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, um, like organizations like the Unemployed Workers Union and the Anti-Probably Networks. I'm um, like, you've been very actively like organizing people on like income support, um, for years and years, not only like around this issue, but, um, I'm like around other issues like the, you know, punitive mutual obligation regime that unemployed people normally, not at the moment, but normally have to deal with, you know, um, job active, all the hoops you constantly have to jump through, work with a doll, the cashless debit card, which is of course, you know, still very active in certain parts of the country. Um, I, I, one of the most exciting things at the moment is a, is a coalition that's been set up of, uh, welfare activists, union activists, and others called, um, the Life um, Coalition or the, um, Living the Living Incomes um, for Everyone Coalition, uh, and uh, it's a national alliance. Uh, um, I'm like, you've had a huge number of organisations um, sign on to their statement, which includes um, making the the uh, doubled rate of job seeker permanent, 
um, suspending all mutual obligation requirements, um, so ensuring that no one ever gets their payment um, cut, um, like for any reason, because you know that's their that's their sole source of income and it should never be taken away from uh, um, from someone. Um, like ending like a lot of the rorts around JobKeeper by ensuring JobKeeper is paid directly to the worker and not via the the employer. Um, so they're a they're an exciting new organisation. Uh, the uh, Victorian Trades Hall have recently um, signed on. They're working closely with the um, United Workers Union. Another um, unlike a number of um, um, First Nations organisations are. Uh, Signing on and also um, uh, um, like ethnic and migrant groups, um, but led in particular by um, some of the organisers at the Anti-Poverty Network who've um, been working in this space for a very, very long time. So I'll certainly like encourage people to check them out on on um, on um, Facebook. It was really, really a, a unique like alliance of uh, you know people from the uh, trade union movement, you know people in the anti-poverty and unemployment space and like a whole range of other voices who are coming together at, at exactly the right time. I guess well, can, we can finish up the interview now, but I guess do you have any final comments, I guess, you'd like to make? Yeah, well, I'll tell people listening that uh, on, on July 23rd, the government is um, – and the government is having a mini budget and it's been widely reported that there will be a permanent raise um, to job seeker like announced. But the, the figure that seems to keep getting mentioned, um, a 75 a week increase is nowhere near enough. Let's, let's be clear. Like, like a 75 a week increase would be a $200 a week, um, cut on the current income, which as I said, is only just above the poverty line. So, over the next few weeks, um, I'm going to be pushing people really, really hard to um, to push the government really, really hard to make sure that that we don't um, like have a massive cut that takes people, you know, back below the poverty line again. Um, there's a national day of action being planned for Tuesday, July 14. Um, so uh, follow the raise the rate page on Facebook find out more about that. There'll be lots of activities like happening right across the country um, to ensure that if we do get a permanent raise, um, after 26 years of the payment being frozen, it needs to be a substantial one and 75 a week. Nowhere near enough. Nowhere near enough. So, yeah, check us out on Facebook and keep keep the 14th free in your diaries for the National Day of Action. Um, um, you'll hear more about it from us very, very soon. Thanks, Eve. Yes. <laughs> Keep up the great work. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you very much, um, Paz. Okay, we were just talking to Paz Forgani about the whole issue, um, a lot of the issues related to welfare uh, in the country. We'll go on probably to our next guest shortly, but I'll just play a quick announcement. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Because music. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Check out 
Music Sons Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. Who they hit since the hot show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. Okay, good morning listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio and on the line we have a member of Social Science and regular writer for Green Left, Peter Boyle. Um, and so we have him on the line today, I guess, to talk a bit about a broader kind of political issue. And, and that is, um, just recently, and this is what Peter Boyle, um, wrote in an article about, um, Morrison using cyber scare to push Trump's racist anti-China campaign and just happening on kind of like on June, uh, the 19th, um, there was this basically this whole kind of fear um cyber attack that happened and basically um Scott Morrison and the federal government were very quick to kind of pin it on um China. And I think there's also been all these kind of questions kind of raised about, you know, so called China kind of interference in Australian affairs, despite the fact that Australia has its own issues with secrecy and accountability when it comes to the government. And of course there's also been this recent announcement of the federal government implementing spending over 800 million, I think, or might have been even more, 80 million on, uh, essentially buying air war machines from the United States. So yeah, good morning, Peter. Hi, good morning. How are you? Can you yeah. hear? Me? Yeah. yeah, we can hear you now. Um, um, yes. Great to join you. Yeah. So Peter, what can you, I guess, tell, um, tell us a bit. Maybe to start off, I mean, what can you tell us, I guess, about this whole sort of issue of scientists sort of pin China towards some kind of uh, foreign interference of um, the Australian government affairs? Well, obviously, it's been building up for some time, hasn't it? Um, the, the Particularly during the period of coronavirus, I mean, at one level, people might have thought almost... Um, why the hell did Australia, did the Australian government choose to, to basically come behind, uh, Trump's blame China for the, for, for the pandemic line, which was, was so absurd, um, by, 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 you know, any rational, uh, judgment, uh, China, you know, while, while that was the source of the virus, um, uh, in this particular case, uh, China actually had been a much more responsible actor in responding to the pandemic than the United States, which is demonstrably today has behaved, the United States government's behaved in a most irresponsible manner. But I think over the last few days, uh, we, we can see a, a, a bigger picture here coming into play with this whole string of very dramatic media oriented, um, scare campaigns based around China. Now the cyber scare on June 19 was was one of them. And, and, you know, in, in preparing the article, I tried my best to try and find out, um, 
you know, what the basis of this scare was. And when you, when you really delve down to, you know, as, as good as ordinary people can get, which is to read the detail of the actual alert that was issued by Cyber Australia, um, there really was, this was something built up on nothing. Uh, they, they had detected some greater activity. Uh, of a particular kind, which was more in the, in the, in the area of the ongoing testing of security that happens by, by, by parties all around the world, both state actors and non-state actors and criminals and everybody else. But interestingly, uh, this particular, uh, event that happened, uh, or escalation of events, uh, was, was described by cybersecurity as not having any destructive or disruptive intent. So it, it, it really raises a lot of suspicions about, about why we're, 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 we're suddenly told to panic about a cyber attack. And the practical recommendations that the prime minister put forward were change your passwords regularly and uh, take, take up uh, two factor verification. Now that's very sound advice for cybersecurity for households, but you know, that has applied uh, for forever. So its main purpose, its main to-do activity, if you like, uh, from the point of view of the Prime Minister, was to be afraid, to be scared. And, of course, through private briefings, informal briefings, be scared specifically of China. Subsequent to that, there's been another uh, a raid on a New South Wales Labor MP's office and, and, and home. Um, uh, Shakat uh, Musulman, he's a sort of a back, Backbencher in the upper house in New South Wales, you know, um, most people never even heard of him. He, he has been outspoken on some international issues, uh, in particular Palestine. He's a strong supporter of Palestine. And he has made some defense of China's handling of the coronavirus. Uh, he has also come out and supported, uh, the, the rights of the Uyghurs against China. So not, he hasn't got a kind of a like, uh, you know, Push, push the China line completely. But this was another big media, media staged event. The AFB came along. The, 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 the media was, was, was brought along in tow to take pictures. Immediately, the Labour, um, uh, New South Wales opposition leader, Jody Mackay, suspended, um, uh, Shakat's membership of the Labour Party. And now they're moving to, to suspend him from, from Parliament. And, and then, of course, you know, the, the picture becomes clearer, I think, with the announcement, the most latest announcement of, of, of the new, uh, defense posture, uh, position and with the celebrated headline of $270 billion to be spent on, on, uh, Australian military offensive capability. And, and, and then now we see a picture, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's all about justification for a particular, uh, aggressive imperialist military policy that they want to lock in in this period. So I think that's the, the general context. It's, I think it's kind of interesting that Scott Morrison uh, invoked the 1930s and he says, you know, I've been thinking about 1930s, you know, these are dangerous times we're going into. The world will be a poorer place, will be a more unstable place, and we have got to get the, the really big guns so that we can intimidate um, you know, uh, anyone from, and deter anyone from attacking us. But 
let's if we want to go back to the 1930s i think a few other awkward questions arise remember 1930s um the uh, the, the um morrison's equivalents then say robert menzies for instance you know who was the emerging leader then um, he was pro hitler you know he thought hitler was a great guy he thought the nazis were doing a great job uh in 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 germany i mean so you know if if we're going to invoke that sort of period um you know uh, there are some awkward questions for the liberal party in particular but i think the other thing is that it's very interesting all this sort of uh pointing at china is always sort of oblique and it's you know not 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 a lot of uh not not of a direct owning up to it by the government but they're pointing people that way but it has to be said that if you look at the last 75 years in particular last 75 years in history how has australia's military power been used and who against has it been used against a major power that's threatening australia or has it been used to bully smaller third world countries well, you know the answer is pretty obvious and i don't think there's a change there i think in a world that is going to become yes more divided and poorer and recently i've been i've 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 worked on another article looking at studies that are estimating the economic impact the massive economic impact on the third world uh flowing from the economic fallout from the coronavirus uh pandemic uh yes the world is going to be there's going to be large parts of the world that are going to be a lot poorer and they are mostly going to be the third world countries the global south and therefore i suspect that any increase in australia's capabilities is going to be aimed at them yeah um i guess the the kind of next question that gets flows out of this is um do you think that there are certain divisions within kind of like the major capitalist parties within australia i guess on this question of china and the us because um you know people on the left or even commentators have often speculated about this so-called coming war with China and it's quite clear that in the context um of this um very hardened sort of US Australian alliance that goes back um quite a long time in history um uh, that Australia is clearly aligning itself with US in any sort of inevitable kind of war scenario but at the same time there does appear you know going back to um you know the um Kevin Rudd uh the likes of even Paul Keating um but they they there does appear to be certain divisions on this question within the capitalist parties and i guess what is your some of your comments on that peter i think i think if you look at the economics of the situation you have to question the the premise of of of, of the quest of you know of of this whole whole discussion I actually don't think that the primary thing here is an impending war on China. I don't think so. I think it is true that the the west of the imperialist countries are increasing their military uh intimidation power to militarily intimidate China. That's true. But I'm not sure whether that necessarily means war. They are trying to bully China into behaving in a more compliant way. at the level of the economy and i think that's where the current conflict because basically 
China is a paradox for 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 the for the most developed capitalist countries in the world. On one hand, it allowed them to escape their crisis in the late 1970s, uh, in an economic crisis, by basically, you know, uh, offshoring a lot of their, their their production work to China, where they could do it at lower cost. Uh, the price of this has been China has also developed economically and in certain aspects now presents as a competitor uh, to the West as well as you know uh, if you like part of its uh, production chain its 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 economic supply chain. So I think what we are looking at is not actually a war. China is certainly not about to attack the West. Uh, and I think John Pilger's film makes it clear. You just have to look at the, at the map of, of the military bases that are totally surrounding China. And you find that, you know, China's, China is not, you know, in a position to do that, nor has, is there any indication that it is about to. Um, China is definitely, uh, if you like, using economic power to try and protect its economic interests. And I think that's, this is what it, it, it's about. Um, Australia and the United States and the other imperialist countries are used to running the roost economically, politically, um, and militarily. And what they are doing now is shoring this up. And I would have to say that in Australia, uh, on this question, unfortunately, it's uh, the Labour Party is shoulder to shoulder with the Liberal Nationals. And in fact, in each one of these three major media uh, uh, developments recently that we saw, you know, all around this, one way or another around security, the first thing Anthony Albanese has said is, you know, when it comes to security, you know, we we are one with with the government. So, you know, um, I think Morrison's laughing. He's laughing. He's got the Labour Party jumping straight away to say that, that they're one on this question. Now, does this mean that you know? Uh, I see. There's a, there, there, there definitely is a debate about how exactly this is within the capitalists in Australia and in the U.S. How much to push China uh, on the economic question, and 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 how to deal with that? You know, and and there's definitely a lot of unease among sections of the capitalist class about the more populist, protectionist. Uh, directions that 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 uh, well Trump points to every now and then. He 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 plays a game around this because at a certain level, you know, he's another billionaire. Uh, he's in the same billionaire class, and therefore he also understands that you know they, they do want China still to be part of 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 their economic uh, supply uh, chain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and actually, not just supply. Um, increasingly, particularly for a country uh, like Australia, they want China also to to sell their stuff to, and 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 China uh, in 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 the case of of Australia, vis-à-vis China, that looms large, because Australia exports uh, minerals to to China and sells education services to China, takes advantages of Chinese coming to Australia as tourists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. In, in, in the economic... It's like Australia wants to bristle up, get itself yeah. armed and say, hey, China, you better keep yeah. buying our stuff. That's right. I mean, it's it's a very funny kind of uh, way of doing business, isn't it? Like if you imagine it, <laughs> if your neighborhood shop decided to do that, you know, 
put thugs outside till you come and buy our stuff. <laughs> so, so I think that we have to question the framework which the mainstream media sets for this, you know, which is war with China. Because when they say war with China, they, they want to invoke the fear that China is about to attack Australia. And I don't think that's true. Um, and I guess going, actually saying, do you have a question you want to ask? Uh, yeah, well, just to expand a little bit further on that, like what's the history of China invading any countries, uh, <laughs> let alone countries as far away as Australia over the last however long? Uh, none. Uh, <laughs> China's, <laughs> been the vic- <laughs> China's been the victim of invasion. Um, hmm. No, I'm not a... I'm not saying China is, you know, is, is to be taken as, as a good actor and not be criticized. I'm, I support the, the democracy rights movement in Hong Kong. And actually I support that, um, that, that, that the rights that, that they are able to win and hold on to should be extended to all the Chinese people. They should have the same democratic rights. I support the rights of the Uyghurs, you know, against, I don't think the Chinese government is, you know, blameless, uh, you know, uh, should not be subject to criticism. But the criticism has to be uh, accurately, you know, applied. So a criticism for its democratic, its 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 undemocratic behavior vis-a-vis its own citizens, I think is, 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 is legitimate. A criticism for China for, uh, for, for, for being militarily expansionist, I think that's very hard to prove. I mean, there are two hot areas now. Uh, there's the South China Sea island builder. Now, okay, you know, I think, you know, a, a variety of countries in the region are concerned about this correctly, including Vietnam. Uh, they don't particularly want China to do it, but you have to say this is the South China Sea, right? It's like as, as shocking as Australia, uh, having a base in New Zealand. You know, I mean, a military base in New Zealand or, or something like that. It, it's, it's right in its neighborhood. It is not building, uh, military bases and putting its offensive weapons on the opposite side of the world. It's just totally not true. And I, 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 I don't think China, you know, when you think of it, you know, if politics is connected to economics, why would China want to do that? You know, they are doing really well economically. Without gunboat diplomacy. It's the West that actually, ironically, seems to need or seems to believe that it needs gunboat diplomacy to go along with its economic power. Yeah, and I guess um, I want to kind of just bring it to this one sort of last kind of question, and that is, I guess, how does, I guess, this link um, towards, I guess, the issue, I guess, of racism uh, especially towards um, the Chinese community um, and how we can actually fight back against this narrative, um, especially since, you know, this whole coming war against China, it's actually, you know, a kind of narrative um, that, you know, is actually quite common in Australia. In fact, you know, Australia always um, tries to portray itself as like almost, in a sense, going back to the famous sort of young adult book series, Tomorrow When the War Began. Um, it sort of tries to sort of depict itself as being a runnable na- a nation uh, that's threatened by the Asia-Pacific in some way and including and China. Yeah, I think there's uh, racism is, is quite central to this. W- one of our readers after, after um, we... I, 
I wrote the article about about the cyber uh, China so-called China cyber threat. Said, oh well, you know, if if you want to criticize China, you shouldn't be accused of being racist simply because you're doing that. Well, fine, but that's not the point. The point is that this whole political campaign, starting from Trump, uh, Trump China um, coronavirus, is implicitly or explicitly racist. You know, and it's explicitly racist, and there's so much evidence for this. I mean, just listen to Trump, you know, the way he says the word China, you know, like, it's sort of like, it's dripping with racism, you know, you can feel it, you know. And of course, then there's, there's all these cases of violence that people of, of Chinese appearance have been experiencing and are experiencing now. That's real. This stuff is, is, this racism is not an assertion. It is actually real. And why is this the case? Why does this campaign have to be so racist? Because the racism brings in that essential element, uh, that for a certain layer of the population is calculated to overcome the irrationality of the fear. You see, the, the, the more irrational the fear, the more if you like, uh, psychological uh, dirty tricks you have to play to get people to believe it. The more scared you are, uh, the the more you can draw on deep-seated racial prejudices about the yellow peril, about Australia being a little, you know, white settler state in the middle of a brown-yellow sea of millions and millions of people. All that sort of visceral racism that has been... built in and has a a great legacy in Australian colonial history, it calls upon that, it draws it up from from, from underneath. I I, I think you can see it, you know, and and, and that's why I think it's important to bring the question of racism in because it is is part of this political phenomena. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a central part of it. It's not just, oh, we're being critical of China, you know, because China's undemocratic, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you've, it, it's bizarre. I listened to a liberal academic being interviewed on Radio National yesterday and, and she was going, Oh, you know, yes, you know, you know, Australia is a democratic country. China is a, you know, a, 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 a one state communist country. Um, you know, undemocratic, blah, blah. As though that was the whole story. You know, as though that was the story that then settles it down. You know, Australia, the US government, these are the good guys, China, bad. Well, once you go down that road, you know, you're lost, you know. So I think it's important for us to say, you know, to, 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 to ping this as a racist, let's, let's, let's call it exactly what is a racist, imperialist political campaign to bully its way into the future. And do you, do you reckon there's a pivot, Peter, from like, the Islamophobia that we've seen for the last 20 years, it's like that whole thing was getting a bit tired, people were getting a bit sick of it, it just didn't have the traction that it had, you know, immediately following the September 11 attacks. And it's like there's this pivot now away from Islamophobia back to another traditional racist scapegoat because capitalism needs this kind of racist scapegoat. It, at one time it was the Italians, another time it was the Greeks, and then it was Islamophobia or it was Vietnamese migrants, and now like China is the racist uh, scapegoat of choice. Like capitalism always needs this scapegoat to like, divide the working class and have this kind of bogeyman that for people to be scared of. 
Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's a, it's an actual pivot because unfortunately, I think unfortunately, it's like a, it's like um, an overlay, or rather, bringing up another layer of racism that was already yeah. there underneath. And they've because you see, okay, let's go back to the economics of this again. Now, it, and I think that there is some truth in the fact that not only because of the pandemic, but because the globally the pandemic brought on an economic crisis. Not only is it direct results of lockdowns, closure of travel, et cetera, et cetera, but it, it speeded up the process or it, it, it pushed along an already latent contradiction in the global capitalist economy. So I think that we are looking at a period of intense, uh, disparities. Poverty is going to get worse. And I think, um, and uh, it's going to be in, in all parts of the global south. So I think they're going to be drawing upon uh, these uh, racialized, uh, these these racial tropes, you know, to apply to all sections of the global south. I think actually you can see an example, particularly in Melbourne, though they've been a little bit coy about it. There is a bit of this um, blame, blame, you know, Arabic Muslims for for the, the the second round of spread in the working class suburbs. Mm. So, so they're, they're, they're already drawing on that, you know, uh, and, and I think, see, they, they will draw on all of it. Um, the, the figures are, are truly scary, by the way, in terms of the looming economic crisis in the global south. It is horrendous. At a minimum, I think, uh, these, uh, they're calculating 400 million people extra added to the already 700 million people in extreme poverty. And this is like living on less than a dollar 90 US a day. Now that's very extreme poverty. You know, that's, that's not uh, a measurement of all poverty. Uh, other people have measured using um, five, $5 50 as a more realistic thing because they've been saying $2 a day, $2 a day for how many decades, right? As a measurement of poverty. Now, so if we, if we bring it up, we say $5.50 a day, and we get nearly 50% of the world's population falls below that, 3.4 billion people. So we are talking about, you know, quite a, a big impact, uh, you know, many more people pushed into that brackets. And and therefore, I, I, I expect that, you know, that, that this military might that Australia is building up, is going to be applied in the same way it has been applied in the last 75 years, bullying poorer countries into submission, uh, stopping refugees trying to flee, you know, to, to, to get out of the hell. Uh, they're going to be using it in, in all these all, all these different ways. Uh, it's, it's so so the, the whole kind of scary stuff. Oh, China's about to attack us. You know, this is like this is really crass propaganda, and. Um, but it it is powerful in terms of invoking that that whole you know racial fear or the yellow peril etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But unfortunately, it's going to be fear of you know Chinese looking people, Arabic looking people, dark skinned people of all sorts. Sadly. All right. Well, um, Peter, I guess we might just um, we're running a bit um, out of time now. Um, do you want to um, have? Do you have any like final comments? I guess you would like to make. Yeah, I just wanted to mention. I just wanted to mention two things which I I I, I should have brought up as evidence, you know. And I think uh, people need to really follow these two cases, the two secret trials 
that are un- underway or being prepared right now, they're very important because they actually they, they illustrate not only that Australia is also acting in an undemocratic way. I'm referring to the Witness Gay, um, uh, uh, Bernard Clary case, which was about somebody who blew the whistle on Australia, Australian secret intelligence bugging the cabinet officers of Timor Leste, a friendly nation next door, a poor friendly nation. And the other one is the David McBride case, which is an Australian military lawyer who blew the whistle on Australian troops in Afghanistan, killing unarmed civilians, murdering unarmed civilians. Now, these two cases are very important because they highlight, you know, Australian people need to be worried about a malicious state actor spying on them. It's much closer. It's not a foreign country. It's, it's your own government. And secondly, it is a reminder. Australia is acting out there in the world in the wider world, not as a benevolent power, but in, as, as a hostile power. And it's acting in the interests of, you know, multinational uh, corporations, including oil companies in the case of the East Timor. It's explicit. They bug the East Timorese officers in order to get sensitive information, which they passed on to the oil companies during negotiations about um, oil, oil resources in the Timor Sea. Now, you couldn't get a a clearer case than that. So this is the typical, this is the real evidence about, about, um, you know, um, you know, if you like, uh, spying and, 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 and cyber activity. And, and, and we must remind ourselves, going back to the cyber question, Australia is one of the countries in the five eyes network, which includes the US, Canada, Britain, and New Zealand that is actively pursuing offensive cyber warfare right now. And and this is spelled out officially. You can find the documents for it. These countries are actually hacking into other people's systems all around the world. They're getting information. Of course, they've been spying on people forever. But they've also got the capacity to disrupt and to plant false information. All this is spelled out in documents. So this is what the Australian government and the other its allies in in Five Eyes Network are doing. So we should be we should be more worried about them than than worried about um, uh, uh, China spying on Australia. Which I'm not saying it's not doing, but you know uh, they're not the only ones. All right. Um, thank you very much for that, um, Peter. Um, Thanks. Thanks, yeah. guys. Yep. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting kind of discussion. Uh, now, I guess um, we're coming in to the end of our program now. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners uh, for tuning in to Green Left Radio this week. Um, and also, I'll advise to stay tuned, um, tune in for Beyond Zero Missions afterwards. Um, and, yep, we'll all see you next week. See you then. Cheers, Peter. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant.
Away with all your superstitions Servile masses arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap